Hello all, welcome to Control Theory with Control Freaks. My name is Mason Kluatra, your resident host and control theorist. This podcast ventures to interview those shaping the field of control theory and to provide interesting perspectives on the direction of the field. In this first episode, I interviewed Dr. Clyde Martin, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Texas Tech University. Clyde is one of the most well-known names in the field of control, and he has been named both a fellow of the IEEE and American Statistics Association. He has received an honorary doctorate in engineering from KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden, and was named a Jefferson Science Fellow at the U.S. Department of State. Without further ado, let's turn now to my conversation with Clyde Martin. Darn, I put on a clean shirt and everything. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just laugh because this is the third time I've had on a shirt with buttons since um, March. <laughs> wow, good for you. That's awesome. You know, I wear t-shirts around and, and you know, I never go anyplace and so it doesn't matter. That's that's awesome. I don't okay, play. so let's get started. Yeah. So, uh, first question, why control theory? And, you know, what mentors led you to the field? Uh, <laughs> You're going to love this because it was strictly because one of my professors got drunk. <laughs> oh, my. My, my, when I was a graduate student, I was in the purest of pure mathematics. I was in uh, foundational mathematics, um, set theory, that sort of stuff. Sure. And I had a professor that I did a few things with who was an old NASA guy. Hmm. And one night he got drunk and said, how would you like to go to NASA? And I said, sure, I'd love it because there weren't any jobs. At the, in 1971, there were just no no jobs for mathematicians. So uh, he called somebody he knew at, at Ames Research Center in California, and they said, sure, have him apply. And I did, and I got a uh, National Research Council research associateship. And so I went from purest of pure mathematics to aeronautical engineering. Wow. And luckily, the group that I ended up in at NASA was a a group that ended up developing the autopilot that is now used in all of the Boeing aircraft. Wow, so what's wrong with the 737? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they modified it. <laughs> now, you know, it's gone through many generations of, of change. Sure. The, the whole idea of the autopilot was developed by George Mayer's group at, at Ames Research Center, which I was a, a part of. And then I got into control theory there, ran into Robert Herman because one of the guys there wanted him to come and give some talks and he asked me to get in contact with him. And so then Bob Herman and I started working together and that's when I really started doing mathematical control theory. Wow, so was it the fact that it was a very, um, say rigorous applied mathematical discipline that attracted you to it? Uh, no, it was just, um, in fact, what Herman and I did was um, we were instrumental in the development of applications of algebraic geometry mm. to control theory. And there's several things that we did 
um, you know, we use some very abstract uh, geometric objects to model things in, along with some other people. You know, there was uh, my Kozovinkle from Holland and Chris Burns and Roger Brockett from Harvard and, and other people that were doing it. But the applications of algebraic geometry were primarily due to Herman and I and also my Kozovinkle. And Chris Burns was involved in it also, but a little bit later. And geometric control or geometric nonlinear control specifically now is one of the most developed pieces of control, nonlinear control theory, in my opinion. Yeah, that that field was really started by Roger Brockett. And he has a paper in SIM Journal of Control and Optimization uh, probably in 68, 69, somewhere in there, in which he uses one of the differential geometry geometric manifolds to show how to do something. But there were other people that were involved. I mean, none of this develops in a vacuum. There was the Berkeley group of Charlie DeSueur and Lofty Zada and, and that group that were developing nonlinear control. And then at, at MIT, there was Sanjoy Mitter mm. and uh, Mike Athens, but not Mike so much. And then Roger was, was at Harvard. And so, and then there was, of course, Albert, Alberto Isidori in, uh, in Rome that was also very much involved in the development. And the fun part of it was that we all knew each other and we meet at conferences and find out who was doing what to whom and, and what they were thinking about. And, and it was really just a hotbed of, mathematical applications to mostly to aeronautics at the time, although that's, that has changed in the, in the last few years. Sure. You mentioned, of course, some names that I think many people know by heart. I want to come back to Brockett in a second, because I know sure. you have a personal connection to Brockett, but sure. what about Isidori? His book on nonlinear controller is a big one. Do you have any stories about him in particular? Uh, not, not really. I mean, I know Alberto well. He's a quiet guy and he never was, you know, he never went and got drunk with us and, <laughs> and uh, was always sort of quiet around. And, but many, many people went through his lab in Rome. It was La Spenza. And oh, Art Kenner spent some time there. Chris Burns spent some time there. Roger spent some time there. I've never really spent time there. I've visited the lab several times, but I never spent a semester or anything like that. Sure. So, Brockett, if people listening to this don't know, you, I believe, did a postdoc with Roger Brockett at Harvard? No, I did not postdoc with him. I went to Harvard as a postdoc with, with Larry Ho, YC Ho. Okay. And But that, Ho and and Rocket were the control theorists. And so the first year that I was there, I sat over on, on Ho's side of the, of the hall, and he and I did a little bit of stuff. And then I got to talking to, to Roger, and then Bob Herman was also involved at that time. And then the next semester, I moved over to Roger's side of the hall, but I was being supported by NASA, okay. so not, not by Roger. Roger and I have actually never written a paper together. Really? 
we've talked about a million things and, and it just never happened that we actually ever got around to writing anything down that we, that we talked about. Sure. Sure. What is he like? I mean, he's kind of the people are scared to death of him and, (laughs) and he's really a really nice guy. My kids knew him as the man who knew all the words to the Mean Joe Green song. The Mean Joe Green song. <laughs> you know, meaner than a junkyard dog. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jim Croce. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when I had my 60th birthday, Roger, of course, came to the, to the party, and he spent the almost the whole banquet talking to my granddaughter about poetry. Wow. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's really a super nice guy, but um, he can be really fierce. I know one time I was at a conference with him, or I guess it was a conference. Somebody was giving a talk, and Roger was making rude comments about the talk. And, and finally, I said, you know, Roger, we could really make this rigorous by formulating a, a problem in the Grossmanian Manifold. <laughs> he just looked at me and he said, some problems are so bad they don't deserve to be done right. <laughs> so, you know, that was sort of the other side of, of Roger. Roger. But all in all, he's just a super nice guy. Wow. that That's, <laughs> I think, so so much insight. That's awesome. And you saying that he talked to your granddaughter, I believe, about poetry. That's, yeah. that's that, you know, that says something about somebody. That's Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's just the kind of guy he was. I mean, my kids just really liked him. You know, he stayed with us a time or two, actually several times. Back in the early days, we had a habit of, we went someplace, we stayed with whoever we were visiting. Sure. Um, that changed later on when we all had a little more money and then we'd get a hotel room. But but he stayed with us and, you know, I knew his voice and his wife and my wife are good friends. Oh, that's that's really cool. While we're talking about uh, kind of this communal aspect of the field, and you talked about being friends with the guys back in the day that were developing geometric control, um, I think it's fitting to mention how you and I know each other, definitely through my advisor, Dr. Thitza, Dr. McKinthitz at Mercer University. And you came uh, to visit campus a few years ago. You guys are were working and possibly still work still are working on that problem together. But uh, I think the more interesting story there is how you met Dr. Thitsa. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose she sort of told you what the story was. Yeah. Uh, I was at a conference on decision and control meeting. I think it was in Atlanta. It was in Atlanta. And I was standing there just not doing anything, thinking about something. And then this woman comes up to me and says, you have to come to my talk tomorrow. And I said, well, what's your talk about? And so she explained, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll try to be there. And um, then she went back and talked to her advisor and pointed out that she had asked me to come to the talk, and he said, that was Clyde Martin. I don't know why that was supposed to be a negative, but uh, <laughs> uh, and so I went and to her talk and listened to it, and then it was – a while before we actually started working together, probably a couple of years, she was I'd already, I guess, was at Mercer. 
is when she, she made contact again, and then we we thought of some problems that we could work on, and so we published I don't know two or three papers. I I, I don't really remember sure. uh, how many, and then we've worked on various problems. Still working on problems together. Nothing in specific right at the moment, but there's a couple things I'm working on that 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 if I ever get it written up, she'll get some credit for. <laughs> and likewise, I'm sure with some of the things she's doing. Yes. I, we're just good friends. I know when she has, you know, a really fun mathematical toy that she will always say, oh, I'm going to take this to Clyde. And yeah, he thinks so. I know that, yeah. she- that that's the kind of relationships, you know, that that's really important. It was really important for me to have somebody that I could talk to about problems and get some ideas from things don't always mature into publishable ideas sure sometimes they do and sometimes they turn into big ideas Absolutely. and this stuff that she's doing now on optimization uh i think is really first class yes those are very exciting problems i don't know if she's well i i don't want to talk about it on here but we'll talk about it afterwards when, okay not sharing this publicly. Yes, very interesting problems. I know that when you came here, I think that w- w- when I had breakfast with you guys, yeah. you guys were talking about modeling and or controlling uh, some disease spread, particularly uh, HIV. Anyway, I-, I wanted to lead up to a point and a question about how you have worked with a wide variety of disciplines in control, uh, as I should say applications in control theory. You know, you've worked with biological systems, uh, you've worked purely abstractly, but in reading up on you prior to doing this, I was reading about being awarded the Jefferson Science Fellowship, you know, working on crop insurance in Africa. And in there, they also talked about some of your prior work on disease modeling, particularly like the 1987 measles outbreak at Texas Tech. Yes. Talk for a minute about either, you know, your crop insurance problem in Africa that you worked on as a Jefferson Science Fellow and and or disease spread, particularly in a time of COVID-19 where <laughs> disease spread's important. How has control theory influenced your approach to those problems? Oh, the whole thing on disease I mean, the main thing on disease is how do you control the disease? And you, you can think of it in, in two different ways. You can think, how do I control the disease once it enters the, a body, be it human or animal or, or plant? And I've not done very much on that. I've done a little bit, but I've been more interested in how do you stop the spread of a disease? Sure. And the 1987 measles epidemic was sort of the first time that I, that I got involved in, in that. And that, again, was one of these accidents. I was giving a, a talk in, in Lubbock. That's where Texas Tech is. And the uh, director of the city health department happened to be in the audience. And he came up and talked to me afterwards. And, and at that point, the epidemic was raging. Mm. And... I said, boy, it'd be nice if we had all the data on all the patients. And he said, I can get that data for you. I have it. So he gave it to me. 
and I gave it to a professor in the department who was more in that area, Professor Linda Allen. And then we started working on that, and one of the senior statisticians in the department, Truman Lewis, was working with us. And we're just going through the data. And, and of course, we had a couple of graduate students that were involved. And one of the graduate students was just producing graph after graph after graph, sort of anything he could think of based on, on the data. And I happened to be bored one time when we were meeting and I was looking at one of the graphs and I realized that at the university, the epidemic was stopping when it reached about 98% mm. of the population had immunity. Sure. That was a first. Nobody had ever thought of herd immunity being that high. And so another graduate student, Mark Stamp, who I still work with some, he started developing a model of it. And he had a model that conclusively showed that at about 98% things failed. Wow. And then I had another graduate student who looked at what the effect of density was on the spread of the disease. And we modeled it basically on a lattice, but the lattice had little to do with it other than it, we could then had an easy way to define near, near neighbors. And he did a purely computer simulation. He ran literally tens of thousands of simulations of it again discovered that about 98% and depended on again how dense it was. Now that paper has been read several hundred times during this pandemic. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't get referenced very much because I don't think people quite understand what we were doing on it, but it's, um, it's just being read over and over and over again. But the whole idea then is, is what can you do with the measles, there was only one tool that we had, and that was vaccination. Mm. We did some serious simulations of, of how to distribute the vaccine among the dorms on the university campus. And we could not find a strategy that really helped. But wow. what we did find was that every day that you could speed up the start of the vaccination program, you saved about 10%. Wow. And um, that actually then was reported to the Texas Public Health Commission. And then our data on that then resulted in Texas requiring a vaccination for all entering freshmen. Wow. Oh, wow. So starting. <laughs> so, but it's control. You know, how, how do you control it? And the same thing happens in the body. You know, you get a viral infection and, you know, antibiotics aren't really going to help, but, but is there some way to control it? I haven't looked at that problem very hard because it's way out of my field. You, <laughs> you've got to know a lot of things that I don't know to realistically attack that problem. We do do some work on asbestos in the human body. Mm -hmm. um, that's work that's ongoing, doing a bunch of work with EPA on various uh, chemicals in the body. The stuff that I did at the, when I was at the State Department, I, I did work in insurance, hmm. and that was not a control problem as such, but more an identification problem. 
we were working with something called weather indexed insurance in Africa. And the way it worked is that if the, if the rainfall exceeded some fixed amount, then the farmers didn't get paid anything. But if it was less than that, then they got paid on, depending on how much less it was. The problem with the insurance was that there were only a few weather stations. Oh, wow. And so it was just the area right around the weather station that was eligible for, for the insurance. And what I was doing mostly was complaining about the whole design of the weather insurance because they weren't selling enough of it to do any good. Uh. And... Then the other thing was that I thought felt that there were ways that you could extend out from the weather stations and include, you know, probably a hundred times more land area than, than what they were covering. Your advisor and I did some work on that a couple of years ago that we never published of how to spread that out. And it was sort of a combination of some ge- geometry and some statistics. You kind of give a good transition to an Another question that's important to you, you worked in a department of statistics at Texas Tech. That's kind of unusual uh, for most control theorists. Okay. Yeah, the statisticians thought so too. <laughs> <laughs> talk about that. How do you end up in statistics? And it, talk- started, it started with the measles epidemic. Okay. When I, was, when I was working with Truman Lewis on the statistics, I got interested in it. And then there was a young professor, uh, Sean Sun, came and I started doing a lot of work with her. I just sort of migrated into it. Sure. And then I realized that a lot of the work that I had done over the years really was very statistical in nature. A lot of the system identification type stuff was statistical. Sure. And um, so I worked on it. And... Um, established a, a bit of a reputation in the area, but uh, I can assure you that the statisticians at Texas Tech did not think it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, um, you know, I became a fellow of the ASA and a, yes. an invited member of the International Statistics Organization, which is a reasonable thing. It was a nice honor. Abs- no, that's a huge honor. That is, And then the the other place where statistics really came in was in the control theoretic splines. Uh, that, making a great that I did with Magnus. Yes. And then um, Shan Sun was also Sean Sun was also involved in that. And then there was a, a, a lady in the uh, University of Stockholm, Ishao Zhao, that I worked with on on that. In fact, I always felt that the work I did with Ishao was the best work that, that I did, you know, later in my career. Wow. Talk, talk for a minute about control theoretic splines, obviously some optimization going on there, some statistics. Yeah, the, the original splines were interpolating splines. That is, you've given some points, and then your object was to find a curve that passed through those points that was smooth and had some nice properties. And so interpolating splines were used for that. Those were developed primarily right after World War II or during World War II. Then they became used every place for anything that had machine turning and things of that sort. Those algorithms were all all spline algorithms. The shape of a car fender that was laid out with, with interpolating splines. And then there was a professor at Wisconsin, and I cannot think of her name at this moment, 
she thought that splines were nice, but they just were not statistical. So she said, let's just make sure that the curve goes close to the points and is still smooth. And so this, she developed this and she developed it as a tool for smoothing data. Then again, Bob Herman and I were asked by a guy we worked with, George Mayer, if we could produce fonts like Apple was doing using splines. So our thought was let's have a control system and let's drive a curve through that set of points and, and construct the, the font. We did that and, and it was successful. And then I gave a talk on this at, at a colloquium in the math department of tech. And one of the mathematicians or one of the statisticians came up afterwards and he said, that's really nice, but it's not very useful if, for a statistician because you don't take into account error. Mm. He said, can you do that? And so I thought about it and said, yes, I can. I can, can do it. And so I developed an optimization procedure. And it turns out it was the same optimization procedure that the woman at, at Wisconsin was using. But it was kind of funny because I didn't know about her. And I was doing it for a very different reason Sure. <laughs> and she was, because I was doing it to construct paths, and she was doing it to smooth data. Wow. And it was a bit later that I discovered that, you know, she was one that really had credit for, for doing it. Yeah. And then Magnus and I did a bunch of stuff on it. Then uh, Masayaki Nagahara in Japan and I wrote a very nice paper using a different optimization technique. There's still tons of stuff that can be done there. Uh, your advisor and I are vaguely talking about trying to do some more stuff on that. And, and I've been thinking about it again. Really, what you're doing is you're using two optimal objects. One, you're trying to minimize the control power. Sure. And then you're trying to minimize the distance from a set of points. Right. And then what optimization technique you use on those two different objects then really determines a lot about what the control uses. Uh, Masayaki and I did L1 control, and most of what Magnus and I did, I guess almost all Magnus and I did was L2 hmm. control. But there's been, a, been a, quite a bit of work done on that uh, by other people since, and I haven't really published a paper in it for 15 years, I suppose. Wow. Uh, so you, you and Magnus have a book together on Contemporary yeah. Explains. Uh, how did you meet Magnus? Uh, <laughs> I was, uh, I had a whole string of students from the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm that came to tech to work with me for essentially a master's degree. It's not called a master's degree. It's, it's, it's part of their undergraduate curriculum, but it's um, their master's levels students when they came. And Magnus was, I suppose, my third or, or fourth student that came. And um, I gave him a problem and they would come for three months. And I would say, okay, you give me two months of undivided attention and work on this. And then you have a month that you can, can go around and see the United States. Right. So he did. And he swears that his instructions consisted of two circles and a straight line. And he lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, it, the problem I gave him was how 
the control of vision with with the head when the, the head is quite heavy and takes a lot of energy to move and then you can rotate your eyes and follow an object and how do you minimize energy wow to to track an, an object and he he did that problem that's actually published someplace i don't remember where and then we just started working together i spent a, a semester at kth um, and lectured and he and two or three other kids were were in my class and it was really fun they were really sharp and you know i've written papers with all of them since then and lots of other people there too and magnus has gone on to be quite the success himself he's now the chair of electrical and computer engineering at georgia tech yes wow that's interesting are there he and our good friends and and um we haven't really worked together for several years because he he's really really big in robotics and i i never really got into the robotics problems i did some stuff on vision with me joining a little bit with with him um, but i never got into really the nitty-gritty of of robotic control sure sure so i want to wrap this up and then maybe we can uh, share a few thoughts without this recording my big question to you uh, you've shared so much about your experience in the field and i think that your story kind of outlines how the field has uh, changed over your lifetime where do you see the field going what's the next biggest challenge for control theorists to tackle there's there's multiple huge problems autonomous vehicles is is still a a huge problem there's a a woman in russia who is doing a super job of developing automate autonomous farm equipment Hmm. and she's also done some buses i can't remember her last name her first name is olga um but she's done some really good work there's a lot of work going on in the united states on developing autonomous cars and trucks i figure within 25 years truck driving will be a non-existent skill. Wow. You know, but that it just simply won't be necessary, that it'll be cheaper and better to have the trucks driving themselves. Private cars, maybe, maybe not. Then there's huge problems in biology and in medicine in particular. You know, how do you design treatments for diseases using control theoretic models? Mm. that's one area where I feel that there's huge advances and, and huge developments that can take place there in the economy. You know, how, how do you, how do you control an economy? What are the possible controls? How can you do it? I've done a little work in, in economics, but only one paper has really gotten much attention. And that was one I wrote with my, with my son when he was at the federal reserve. Oh, wow. Uh, those there's problems there and i think any area where you have inputs that affect a system is a control theoretic problem and they can be attacked in other ways and probably sometimes more successfully but i think it's something that that anybody that wants to do control theory can find a whole host of problems out there that are new exciting and worthwhile and there's also really good problems out there that are not worth anything you know that are just fun <laughs> absolutely I you think- know I'm, I'm doing some working on some of those right at the moment 
And, you know, I spend a lot of hours at night laying there thinking about how to, to do this problem. And, and it has no use whatsoever that I can see. <laughs> I joke and say that the job of an academic is to wake up every morning and work to solve the problems that kept them up the night before. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and that marked the end of my conversation with Dr. Clyde Martin. I've been Mason Cluatra. To learn more about control theory from those that have shaped the field and will continue to shape it, stay tuned to more episodes of Control Theory with Control Freaks.